I have a lot on my heart and mind that have been accumulating over the weeks that I have been gone from you and been praying here this morning that the Lord would enable me to make some sense of all that has been rumbling around in there. So if you um, would like to pray for me, even as I'm preaching for clarity, I would appreciate it. We've got a lot to cover, and I want to do so in a way that is really clear and, and hopefully compelling. The Proverbs tell us in Proverbs 29 and verse 2 that when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. A wicked ruler brings great heartache upon the people. We know, Daniel tells us, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21, we know that God sovereignly raises up leadership and sets it aside again according to his purposes. It's a clear message of the book of Daniel to a people that are in captivity and in a very difficult place. God is sovereign over leadership. But we also know that Leadership is a reflection of the people over whom they rule. You read the Old Testament and the history of the nation of Israel and their kings, and it is pretty obvious to you as you read through it that the people get the kind of ruler that they deserve. A good and righteous ruler is a blessing of the Lord, and a wicked ruler is a judgment on the people. The rulers are also a reflection of the people. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. We're picking up again here in the final section of this book. Lord willing, we'll finish this book up sometime before summer, or at least early summer, and We've got some other things that we want to talk about beyond that. But we're here now in chapter 27 and verses 11 to 26. Jesus' trial before Pilate. But as we look at this section together, I want to just begin by asking you a few questions to think about. The first question is, where does, or rather, how does evil come upon a nation? How does evil come upon a nation? And as I was working my way through this section of Matthew's gospel and thinking about it and thinking about how to apply it to our day and age, I think that we have here before us in the text the the process by which evil does come upon a nation. And I want to trace that process with you. I mean, it's very clear here in the text that the people choose, rather than the prince of peace, they choose Barabbas, a murderer, and they call for Jesus to be crucified. And that is unfathomable to us. But it shouldn't be. But it shouldn't be. Why did the crowds turn on Jesus? Why did they? What brought that about? I mean, it was only a few days before. This is Friday morning. It was only Sunday when they were calling out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? Hosanna to the son of David. Welcome, King Jesus. And here we are less than a week later, and now they are calling for his crucifixion. What possibly could have happened? Some are quick to point out that there were different crowds involved. And that's possible. They would, they would say that the crowds that turned out on Palm Sunday were the pilgrim worshipers coming down from Galilee to come into the city to worship the Passover. And so they, being familiar with Jesus through his 18-month-long greater Galilean ministry and witnessing the many, many miracles that he performed there, were very enthusiastic about him, and thus they turned out for him and to welcome him in as the king of Israel. And then they would contend that the crowds on Friday morning were the residents of Jerusalem and its environs, and that they were more hostile to the prophet from Galilee, the Nazarene. 
And that the difference can be explained as simply as that. Just two different crowds of people with two different political outlooks. And there's quite possibly a measure of truth in that. But I don't think it goes anywhere near to explain the difference of the crowd reactions. And certainly Matthew would not have us understand it as the entire explanation for the difference because Matthew himself is very, very clear here in, for example, verse 25 before us to say that all the people called out. All the people called out. Matthew is indicting the nation of Israel, all of them, for crucifying their Messiah. They are all engaged and culpable for the decision. So regional loyalties may have played a role, but I think it's deeper than that, and I suspect that it actually has everything to do with the nation of Israel rejecting the narrow path that Christ had laid out before them. Much, much earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he had talked about two ways, a broad path and a narrow path, a wide gate and a narrow gate. One led to life and one led to destruction. And I think when the people finally came to the place where they understood what the narrow way and the narrow gate was all about, they rejected it. Jesus made it very, very clear to them on Monday and Tuesday of Passion Week, exactly what he was all about. And he finished his time there in the temple area with Matthew chapter 23, in which he chastised the Pharisees and the most um, strict and, and um, con- condemnatory language, calling them broods of vipers. And when he did so, he was condemning a pharisaical Judaism, that which the people themselves held on to, that that self-righteousness, that works-oriented righteousness, that assumption that you would be okay with God if you just paid attention to his law and did the sort of things that he would call you to do, that everything would be fine. After all, they're children of Abraham, aren't they? And Jesus put an end to that. And he said to them that the way up is down, that humility is a requirement for entrance into the kingdom of God. That he called to the people and he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you less. You need to trust me and not yourself. And then he left them Wednesday and Thursday morning to think about it. And I think as they went home and they thought about what he really was saying and just exactly what he was offering them, they decided they weren't buying. They didn't want it. And so, after considering his words, they turned their backs on him. And in the process, they and their posterity descended into madness and chaos. Fulfilling Jesus' prophecies of the destruction of the temple, the scattering of the nation. So as we look here at Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 26 this morning, in it I find a three-stage process. A three-stage process by which a nation is given over to evil. So as we work through it together, we're actually going to harmonize the other Gospels. We're going to bring into play what Luke has to say about the trials before Pilate and what John has to say. And in doing so, we'll get a more fully orbed account of what went on Friday morning before Jesus is taken away to be crucified. And then we will make some application to our own day. Let me read Matthew 27, 11 through 26, we will be moving in and out of this text, but it'll serve as the, as the springboard for everything else. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor questioned him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. 
And Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him. He said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. A three-stage process of a nation being given over to evil begins, stage one, with the leadership conspiring. The leadership conspires against Christ. Matthew tells us in verse 2, of chapter 27, that after Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin had rendered their, their uh, religious uh, uh, verdict on Jesus, that they then led him bound away to Pilate the governor in order to have his civil trial, as it were, that is really just to carry out the execution that they had already predetermined to bring about. John tells us in John 18, and we'll go ahead and turn there and I don't know if you want to keep your thumb in John 18 or however you want to do this, because we will be back and forth. But John tells us and gives us a, just an additional insight into the hypocrisy of the Jewish leadership here. That when they led Jesus uh, from Caiaphas into the praetorium where they would have their audience with Pilate, it was very early, verse 28. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled and might eat the Passover. So they don't want to enter into the house of a Gentile lest it defile them while they were in the process of engineering the the murder of their own Messiah. The hypocrisy is stunning. Pilate goes out to them to hear their charges, verse 29. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do they bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Our charge is he's a bad guy. Kill him. Well, Pilate is not particularly satisfied by that, and so he asks them to to detail the charges a little bit, which they do, and Luke records that for us over in Luke chapter 23, and so we'll have to turn there. So we're going to be in Matthew 27, John 18, Luke 23. Fortunately, the Lord has given you ten fingers, and so you're in good shape here. So Luke 23, they specifically make a threefold accusation against him. We pick it up in verse 1. Then when the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate, they began to accuse him, saying, and here's the threefold accusation. First, he's a bad guy, and Pilate says, you've got to do better than that. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Messiah, a king. So basically they accuse him of misleading the nation, forbidding the payment of taxes, and saying that he was a king. But Pilate is not persuaded by any of that. He is not persuaded by any of that. Pilate himself knows what's going on here, and he knows that the, the falsity of these charges. So he is unpersuaded by it, but he turns to Jesus himself. We're back to Matthew 27. And he questions Jesus. 
And Matthew records it as, are you the king of the Jews? And actually all four gospels record this question. And uh, it's really not, I mean, it is a question, but, but in the Greek, it, it, the, the pronoun you is placed forward in the sentence, puts it in the emphatic position. And so it really probably went something like, you are the king of the Jews? Pilate is incredulous. I mean, is this the best they've got? You are the king of the Jews? Jesus responds to Pilate's question back in John 18 with a counter question. In verse 33, All right, Pilate entered again into the praetorium, summoned Jesus, and said to him, You are the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Jesus asked Pilate a question in in response. And Pilate answered, verse 35, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you over to me. What have you done? Then Jesus answers, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. Why did Jesus ask Pilate the question? Jesus wants to to determine what is it that Pilate is asking him. Pilate, are you asking me if I'm a a threat to Rome, if I'm some sort of an insurrectionist, if I've declared myself a a political king and ruler over the nation of Israel, and thus a threat to Rome? Is that what you're asking me? Or are you asking me if I'm the messianic king? Once the question is clarified, once Jesus recognizes that Pilate is not inquiring about whether Jesus is a threat to Rome because Pilate already knows that Jesus is not a threat to Rome. Then Jesus goes ahead and answers his question. Yes, I am a king. I am a king. And my kingdom is not the, the kind of worldly kingdom, Pilate, that you need to be worried about. So Pilate goes back out now to the Jewish leaders, John 18, verse 38. And he pronounces him not guilty. And it's not John 18.38. I apologize for that. It's uh, Luke 23.4. Sorry about that. There it is. Luke 23.4. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. So you have the scene so far. Right? They brought him before Pilate. They've said, listen, we wouldn't have brought him here unless he was a bad guy. Just kill him and get it over with. Pilate says, nah, he's not a bad guy. He goes in and he says to Jesus, you, you kidding me? You're the king of the Jews? What kind of king are you? Are you a political king or not? Jesus says, no, I'm not a political king. I'm a Messiah, and the kind of king over whose kingdom I reign it doesn't come into this world in a, in a normal way that political kingdoms arise. Otherwise, I'd have an army fighting for me. Satisfied that Jesus is no threat to Rome, Pilate goes back out to the chief priests, to the Sanhedrin, and he says, I find no guilt in this man. He declares him innocent. The leadership at this point is absolutely enraged. Back to Matthew 27. This is not going according to their plan. The plan was get him killed, get him killed quickly. Let's get this done before the city wakes up and there's a riot that breaks out. So they, then they start making all kinds of accusations. Look at it, verse 12 of, John, of uh, Mark, Matthew rather, 27. While he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, Jesus did not answer. Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they were testifying against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, so that the governor was quite amazed. Jesus goes silent. He's not going to answer their accusations. He's not going to dignify them with a response. Pilate asked him a question, are you the Messiah or not? He says, yes, I am the Messiah. After that, Jesus goes dead silent. Dead silent, trusting in his own father. Pilate is baffled by this. 
He has never had a prisoner before him, particularly one who was innocent, who hasn't protested their innocence. And Jesus says, not a word. Not a word. In the course of them making their accusations against him, somewhere along the way that they they say, according to Luke chapter 23 and verse 5, that he has stirred up trouble all over Galilee. All right, so take a look at it. Luke chapter 23, verse 5. They kept on insisting, saying he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. Pilate's ears prick up. Pilate's ears prick up. Ooh, Galilee. That's Herod's jurisdiction. Being the consummate politician that Pilate is, he says, okay, here's how I get out of this thing. They obviously want him dead. Matthew tells us in 27 and verse 18, he knew that because of envy they had handed Jesus over. He has seen entirely through this thing. He has declared him not guilty. They're not satisfied. They're getting increasingly savage in their accusations against Jesus. Pilate doesn't want a riot to start it out. He hears that Jesus is from Galilee. Herod is the one who, the political leader in Galilee, Galilee, and it just so happens that Herod is in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover, and Pilate says, perfect. We'll just kick the can over to Herod. And so that's exactly what he does. Luke 23, verse 6, when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. So just like a good politician, right? Enough to make a decision, I just kick it to somebody else, and that's exactly what he does. He shoots it over to Herod. Let Herod deal with this problem. Let me go back to bed. Herod's very glad, verse 8, when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time. Why? Well, Matthew tells us in Matthew 14 that this is the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded, right? Because John the Baptist confronted him in his adulterous uh, marriage, his incestual mar- uh, incestuous marriage. And so he had John the Baptist executed. But Herod was deathly afraid in the preaching ministry of Jesus that somehow John the Baptist had come back from the dead and was going to torment him. So he'd been trying to see Jesus for for this long a period of time. Now's his chance. Jesus comes to Herod, verse 9. Herod questions him at length. Jesus answered him, crickets. Nothing. Not a word. This is no fun. And so in short order, and the chief priest, by the way, and the scribes are standing there, right, accusing him vehemently. When Herod and his soldiers, you know, they don't get anything out of him, so they mock him. They dress him up in a gorgeous robe. They send him back to Pilate. Herod can, can get nothing out of him. And look down to verse 15 here, where Pilate then later tells the Jews I, um, that Herod sent him back to us. Because he's done nothing deserving death. And so Herod can't find any reason to put Jesus to death either. And so he sends him back to Pilate. So Pilate has tried to get rid of his problem. And his problem has, like a boomerang, come right back to him. Come right back. So now what is he going to do? Well... According to Luke 23, Pilate again tells the leadership... That Jesus is innocent. He's, and the leadership will have none of it. Luke 23, verse 16. At that point, Pilate says to them, I'll tell you what, how about if I just beat him and let him go? He's innocent, but it's obvious that you're not going to accept his innocence. So how about if I just rough him up a little bit for you, flog him a little, and then let him go? Will that satisfy your bloodlust. Well, at this point in time, back to Matthew 27, the crowds are beginning to gather in the courtyard of the praetorium. The crowds are beginning to gather here, and they are coming for a reason. They are coming so that they might demand of Pilate what was customary at that time, and that was for Pilate to release one condemned prisoner a sort of a, a, a gesture of goodwill at the time of the Passover. The Passover in Israel was a time of patriotic fervor. It was a time when revolution was in the air. 
And so the Romans, the last thing they want is revolution. And so they, they sort of throw the people a bone at Passover time. They'll let one condemned prisoner go to, to show what, what uh, magna, magnimi, magnanimity, thank you, what, what, um, what, what good feelings they have towards the Jews. Are you guys praying? All right, I need it. So the people are gathering to call out for Barabbas. All right, Matthew 27 again. Verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was a customer at least for the people, any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Okay. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release? For you, Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, John tells us in John 18, 40, I won't turn you there, but, but the Barabbas was a robber. That is, he was, a, he was basically like a highwayman. He was a local thug. Luke tells us in Luke 23, 19, that he was also a murderer and an insurrectionist. That is, someone who was seeking to overthrow Rome. Kind of ironic, don't you think, that Barabbas is actually guilty of the thing they're accusing Jesus to be guilty of, which is insurrection. Barabbas is a legitimate insurrectionist. As a side note, it's, it's um, interesting, I think, that some of the ancient manuscripts uh, tell us that Barabbas' first name was Jesus. That it was Jesus, Barabbas. Barabbas means son of a father. That's what the name means. So it would have been Jesus, son of a father. Do you want me to release to you Jesus, son of a father? Or do you want me to release to you Jesus, who is called Messiah, the son of the father? It's a very interesting contrast. Whom do you want? They couldn't be further apart, and yet, by name, they're drawn together. For Pilate, he sees in this the perfect opportunity. The perfect opportunity. The crowds are there. He knows that Jesus is wildly popular. Right? Palm Sunday. They were turning out for him. Notice how he says to him, do you want Barabbas, son of a father, or do you want Jesus, who is called Messiah? You called him that yourselves. I mean, clearly, clearly, they would want him over a murderer and a thug, wouldn't they? But no, the leadership has conspired all along to get Christ killed. So the second stage of a nation being given over is that the crowds now confirm what the leadership has conspired. The crowds now confirm what the leadership has conspired. Pilate has given the people a choice here. Verse 17, whom do you want me to release? He's confident they're going to choose Jesus over Barabbas. What normal person wouldn't? At that moment, he is interrupted, verse 19, by a message from his wife. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. He has put the decision before the people, and then he gets a note passed to him, and it says, there's a note from your wife. You know, like, hey, your wife's on the line, right? You know, every guy knows that when your wife's on the line, you take the phone call. Okay, so he takes the note, and he reads it, and she says to him, have nothing to do with him. Have nothing to do with him. Now, I can't prove this, but I, I suspect they had been talking about this situation the night before. 
I mean, this thing had all been set up, obviously, because Pilate needed to release the soldiers to go to arrest Jesus the night before. So this thing had already been planned out, and Pilate already knew from his spies and informers that Jesus was no threat to Rome. And so I can imagine him talking to his wife about the whole situation. Yeah, what's it going to be like for you tomorrow at the office, honey? It's going to be a bummer of a day. I got to deal with these people, you know, and they got this guy, and they're trying to railroad him, and we're going to have to, you know, resolve that problem, and, you know. And he gets this note from her and says, hey, I suffered in a dream. Now, some think that God appeared to her in a dream. I don't think the text necessarily says that. I mean, if that's what you want to believe, then that's fine. But I don't think the text necessarily says that. I think it's possible that she just had a nightmare. She just had a nightmare. But anyway, she sends him the, the note and she says, don't do it. Get rid of this thing. Give this, let this guy go. So while Pilate is responding to all of that, he's distracted by all of that. The Sanhedrin now have been working the crowds, and they are persuading the crowds to call out for Barabbas. Now, how do they do that? Well, it's, it's probable that they were falsely spreading the rumor about Jesus blaspheming. Okay? Because later, they, they, uh, the crowds say that he, he, said him, he makes himself out to be God. And that was the original charge, you remember, earlier in chapter 26. But in either way, the, 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 the leadership persuades the crowds here at this point, verse 20, Matthew 27, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. This is not going well. This is supposed to be a, you know, first off, I just say, listen, th- th- he's not a threat to Rome. We're going to let him go. No, we can't let him go. He's done all these bad things. Okay, I'll tell you what, we'll send him over to Herod and let Herod deal with it. Herod bounces him back, and now I've got to deal with him. He says, you know, I'll just beat him up for you a little bit and let him go. And they say, no, that's not acceptable to us. He comes up with the idea, I know, I'll, I'll uh, put the, this, this uh, robber and murderer up. Against, the, against him who you've been calling, you know, your Messiah. And clearly you'll choose your Messiah and you'll let him go. That doesn't work. So you can, he's becoming increasingly desperate here in what to do about this situation. And so John tells us, and by the way, this is where Pilate begins to crucify his own soul. But in John 19, in verse 1, at that point in time, increasingly desperate, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. They beat him. Now, the Romans had three levels of scourging. Three increasingly, uh, levels that grew increasingly severe. So it was kind of, you know, if you can beat an easy whipping, uh, a moderate whipping, and then a final scourging. The final scourging is what Matthew reports to us, I believe, in chapter 27 and verse 26, we'll talk about that more next week, but that would be one that would lacerate a man's back and expose his entrails. And it was the kind of flogging that preceded crucifixion. It could kill the victim. So I think at this point in time, uh, he he has him flogged, but it's a more moderate flogging, but it certainly has laid Jesus back open. Beyond that... We're, uh, we're told in John 19, verse 1, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him, and they came up, and they mocked him, and they slapped him in the face, and they kind of beat him up. At that point in time, Pilate then parades Jesus back out before the people. He's now bruised and bloodied and beaten, and he has a crown of thorns crammed onto his head. The blood is running down and, you know, into his face. They've dressed him in a purple robe. They've, they've mocked him. And, and I believe that what Pilate is doing at this point is he is trying to elicit sympathy for Jesus before the crowds. And so he brings him out in John 19, verse 5. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, that is to the crowd, Behold the man. Look at him. Look at him. This is your insurrectionist? This pathetic, beaten individual. You really want me to go ahead and crucify him? Matthew 27 
and the crowd with blood in the water becomes increasingly vocal and unrestrained. And Pilate said, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Okay, you want Barabbas freed. What do I do with this man? And they all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. Crucify him. This point, Pilate, desperate, says to them, take him and do it yourselves. You want him crucified, you do it. You do it. John 19 and verse 6. Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews, when John uses the term the Jews, he's talking about the the leadership of the nation. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Pilate can find no fault in him. But the Sanhedrin say that he has made himself out to be God, and at this point, Pilate is unnerved. He is unnerved. So he goes back in to interview Jesus again, verses 8 and 9 of John 19. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium and he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said to them, do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. That would be Caiaphas. And as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate says to Jesus, Listen, I have the authority and the power of life and death. And you're not going to talk to me? And Jesus opens his mouth and says to him, You have no authority. You have no authority, really. Pilate wants to let him go. He desperately wants to let him go. But being the consummate politicians, the Sanhedrin turn to Pilate and they say, listen, if you let him go, we will appeal to Caesar that you allowed an insurrectionist to go free. Now, I don't have time to develop it, but you need to know that Pilate's relationship with, with, um, with Tiberius, the emperor, at that time was on very rocky ground. Pilate had already messed up on several occasions prior to this and had been severely reprimanded by the emperor. And so for another bad report from the territories, Pilate might lose his own head. And they know that. So they manipulate him into the corner and they basically blackmail him and say that if you let him go, you're aiding and abetting a revolutionary. And so Pilate now, trying to preserve his own position, his own skin, beaten and defeated, he brings Jesus out before the crowd one more time. John 19, verse 14. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Behold your king. And they cried, away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Crowds at this point are whipped into a frenzy. Matthew 27 Pilate declares himself, verse 24, accomplishing nothing, that a riot is is breaking out. He takes water. He washes his hands in front of them. He says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. He tries to transfer the guilt away from himself. Says to it, see to it yourselves. It's your problem. And then verse 25. 
And all the people said, and all the people said, his blood shall be on us and our children. The inclusion of their children indicates to us that the guilt lay on more than the mob that day. That the nation itself was guilty. Matthew is very clear to make sure we understand that. Notice the, uh, when he says all the people. The nation is guilty. The acts of a few implicate the entire nation. The branch of the olive tree, Romans eleven seventeen, has been snapped off. God's redemptive dealings with Israel terminate. Someday they will begin again, Paul tells us in Romans 11 and verse 26, God will again take up his redemptive program with Israel. But from this point on, Israel spirals into chaos, madness, and destruction. Brings us to the third stage. The leadership conspires, the crowds confirm, the third stage, the nation condemned. And the question, how can a group of individuals, how can a group of individuals act in such a way as to condemn an, envi- an entire nation? How can it be? I mean, maybe there was a couple of thousand people at the most there that morning, early morning. How could it be that they could condemn an entire nation? And can they condemn it? An entire nation. And the answer to can they is yes. And how can they do it is simply this. The mob vocalized and acted out the underlying spiritual current of the nation. They were merely the voice of what was really going on in the nation of Israel. Now obviously not every single Jew alive in that day would have said, release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. But the majority would have. Placed in that position. They didn't want Jesus. They didn't want the righteousness that he offered. They didn't want the, the, the way back to the Father that he made available to them. They were content in their own sin. They were, they were content and self-satisfied and smug. And they wanted nothing to do with him. And when he, when he rattled their cage, when he upset their, their well-constructed life, they wanted him out of the way. So the mob very much spoke for the nation. They represented the the general pulse of the people. And we know this to be true because months later, as Peter is is addressing the nation repeatedly, for example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, speaking to them there on Pentecost, he said, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Down to verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Chapter 3 verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. The one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Listen, the nation acted. The mob vocalized. The nation acted. And the fearful destruction that Jesus had prophesied earlier came to pass. Beloved, in A.D. 70, when the Romans finally broke through the inner walls of the city of Jerusalem and entered the temple... For its final destruction, not one stone was left on another. Yes, they dismantled it. I've been there. I've seen the stones they hurled over the side of the Temple Mount. The historians tell us they crucified so many Jews, they ran out of wood for crosses. It was a brutal, 
brutal destruction. On June 26th, 19, or excuse me, 2015, so less than a year ago, the Supreme Court of the United States rendered a decision. Obergefell. You remember it? It's less than a year ago. By that decision, the Supreme Court of the United States fabricated out of whole cloth a constitutional right for homosexual marriage. I stood before you a few days after that decision was rendered and preached a sermon called The Shot Heard Around the World. You remember it? How far we have fallen. How far we have fallen. We are facing in this country in November of this year, I think, the most crucial presidential election that we have ever faced. The fate of the nation, I believe, stands in the, care, in the, in the balance. And I, re, and I believe that the, the fate of the nation stands on the balance because I believe this election will reveal the character of the nation. Like the mob that day revealed the character of the nation of Israel. Whoever is elected president by the votes of us and our fellow citizens will not receive a majority vote. But they will represent the underlying philosophy of us and our fellow citizens. It's going to bubble to the surface. The depth of our character as a nation will be revealed. And I think it's very grim. It is very grim. The leading presidential candidates of both parties they are morally bankrupt. They stand in opposition in both life and word to everything that a Christian person would believe. There is no way they are authoritarian, they are arrogant, they are unprincipled, and they are self-aggrandizing. They have enriched themselves at the expense of the people. They are two sides of the same coin. They neither respect the Constitution nor the rule of law. They will use the coercive power of the government to squash all dissent. And if you think I'm kidding, the sitting president just released a letter on Friday. It is merely the beginning of what is going to come. The weight of the federal government, and believe me, there is a lot of power consolidated in Washington. The weight of the federal government is going to be brought to bear to destroy the enemies of the state. All dissent will be silenced. Their policies of tax, borrow, and deficit spend will continue until they drive the nation into bankruptcy. Beloved, we owe more than we can ever pay. We are awash in debt, personally, corporately, and sovereignly. The leading candidate for the Republican Party a couple days ago talked about defaulting on the national debt and then backpedaled a little and said, no, we won't default. Instead, what we'll do is print money and inflate it away. If they do that, they will destroy the dollar. And if they destroy the dollar, they will destroy the economy. And if they destroy the economy, we will suffer. 
we will suffer. They are fools. They meet all of the definitions of Proverbs of a fool. And they are a reflection of who we have become as a nation. We are a nation of fools. And this is the best we can put forward. They are grim days coming for the church of Jesus Christ. Beloved, character is formulated over a long period of time. People say, well, well, maybe when they get elected, they'll, they'll change. Listen, does a leopard change its spots? They're not going to change. They're not going to change. May God have mercy on us. Let's pray. Our Father, to to come to pray As Paul instructs us in 1 Timothy to pray for our leaders, we do. But before we do that, we need to confess our sin as a nation. Peter says, let judgment begin in the household of God. And Father, we need to confess that that we is the church of Jesus Christ are part of the problem. The greed has so infected our souls that we have ignored the wisdom of the Proverbs that the borrower is the slave to the lender. And we have borrowed more money than we can ever pay back. Trillions. Student loans. Credit card debts. Inflated home mortgages. Local bonds. State bonds. Federal bonds. More than $19 trillion in federal debt. We owe more than the entire economy can produce in a year. Not to mention the obscene promises that we have made to future generations with regard to Social Security and and Medicare and beyond. A third of our citizens now living in reliance upon the government. Because we refuse to live within our means. Our Father, we look around us and We are assaulted by pornography in every direction we look. And yet we do not blush as we should. Like a frog in the pot is slowly boiled, we have become anesthetized to it. We have become partakers with it. We call it entertainment. We have debased men and women and turned them into objects of our own sinful lust. Mothers and daughters, sons and fathers, selling their souls for some worthless pieces of paper.
all the while, even the church of Jesus Christ clamoring for more. Our Father, we have for decades debased and devalued the gift of marriage. People fall in love. They fall out of love. There is no commitment. We kill our young. We have destroyed a generation and called it choice. And now we rise up against the very creation distinctions between men and women. And say they're interchangeable. That men can be women and women men. And as long as our 401k gets bigger and our house price goes up, we march merrily on. Oh God, be merciful to us. Turn us from our wicked ways. We pray for those in leadership over us. And we pray for their salvation. Without Christ, there is no hope for them. They are lost and eternally condemned. Be merciful to their souls. Restrain the madness, O oh God. Help us, for we have no place to look but you. The bonds of familial love, the bonds of the church will be tested in the days ahead. Oh God, help us to rise to the test. Help us as a people to love Christ and and His righteousness and His kingdom more than our temporal comforts. I pray for those involved in the public education system of this country. Oh God, may you help them to stand strong. For their jobs are on the line. The weight and pressure and authority of an overbearing state will continue to squeeze them. Many will be forced to make decisions regarding their own employment. We as a church may need to come alongside and and financially support them until they can find work. And yet, Father, if we are so self-absorbed, if we are so indebted, if we are so greedy for our own gain, our hearts will be closed. Men and women in, in the marketplace, or increasingly this perverse ideology is being brought to bear as a, as a test of employment even, will be forced to decisions where they need to stand for Christ. Praying for our daily bread something that we have not really experienced may well become a reality 
Strengthen your people. We are part of this nation. We are citizens of this nation. Their guilt is our guilt. We will suffer with them. But Lord, in the suffering, we can suffer as Christians. We can live as lights. We can open our mouths and speak of the love of Christ. May the hope of the resurrection and life everlasting be an anchor to our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.